were faithful until death. And this week we find another church that was faithful in the face of death. Revelation 2, 12 and 13. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. If Ephesus was the New York City of Asia, Pergamum was the Washington, D.C., for it had been the seat of government for almost 400 years, being the capital of the Seleucid Empire, even before Rome made it into the provincial capital of Asia Minor. Now, it didn't have the commercial greatness of Ephesus or Smyrna, but Pliny still said it was by far the most famous city of Asia. And one reason it was so famous was that it housed the second greatest library in all the ancient world. In fact, the king of Pergamum had lured the head librarian away from Alexandria to establish the library there. To retaliate, the king of Egypt placed an embargo on papyrus, the common writing material of the day that was made from reeds that grew along the, uh, the Nile. Well, not to be stymied, the Pergamines developed a different writing material, an even superior writing material, vellum or parchment, that was made from the skins of animals. In fact, the word parchment means pergamine sheet. Well, it was to the church in Pergamum that the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the God of discernment and judgment, wrote, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I'm sure there are times we feel like Satan's throne is in our society, in our world. But Jesus said it's there. It was in Pergamum. Now, what did he mean by that? What was meant by Satan's throne? We, we can't be sure. We can't be sure. Some have suggested that it was a reference to one of the Greek temples located in Pergamum. We've looked at them. Our video pointed out that the altar to Zeus was actually shaped like a seat or a throne. And this 40-foot high altar situated on the top of the Acropolis could be seen for miles around. And with smoke rising from it day and night, it may indeed have looked like the throne of Satan. Others have focused on the Asclepian a temple that housed the college of physicians and priests who healed in the name of Asclepius, the god of healing. Our, our video missed one very important element uh, of that identification, and that was snakes. Snakes. Because snakes were used in their healing rituals, and snakes crawled all over the floor of the dormitories that housed the sick. You certainly didn't want to fall out of bed when you were there. In fact, the staff of Asclepius, with a snake wrapped around it, is the origin for the symbol of medicine that's used even today. Obviously, the symbol of a serpent would have brought Satan to the minds of Christians. And either of these sound plausible, 
But it's really unlikely that the throne of Satan had anything to do with the Greek gods. The Greek gods weren't that much of a threat to the Christians, and their worship wasn't forced on anyone. But emperor worship was. And as the capital of the province, Pergamum was also the center of Caesar worship in Asia Minor. In 29 B.C., a temple was built to the godhead of Caesar in Pergamum. And the Roman concilia, the enforcers of emperor worship, was headquartered there. It was their job to certify that every citizen burned incense to Caesar and declared Caesar as Lord at least once a year. Now, few Romans actually believed Caesar to be a god, but since worship of Caesar proved to be an effective way to unify the, the vast Roman Empire, it was enforced rigorously. And even though pledging allegiance to Rome by declaring Caesar as Lord was more a political activity than a religious one, for Christians it was anathema, something they could not do. Only Jesus could be called Lord. Now, if they'd been asked to demonstrate their loyalty to Rome by paying taxes or even serving in the military, I have no doubt they would have done so. But since the test of loyalty required that they call Caesar Lord, they refused. And they were therefore viewed as disloyal and even revolutionaries. And that is what's brought, what brought on the Roman persecution. Well, apparently what was yet to come to Smyrna had already come to Pergamum. At least one Christian had been killed for refusing to bow to Caesar. Now, we don't know for certain who Antipas was. Tradition suggests that he was their preacher and that he had been slowly roasted to death inside a brazen bull. We can't confirm all the details of his life and death, but we do know he was a faithful witness. Jesus himself called him my faithful witness, my faithful one. Wouldn't that be awesome to hear that someday? For Jesus to say, you were my faithful witness. I like that. But you know, the word is a little bit frightening. Because the word for witness is martus, from which we get the word martyr. And it may very well be that from the time of Antipas on, that being a witness for Christ was equated with running the risk of being a martyr. But even the face of death, the Christians of Pergamum held fast. They knew how to handle head-on confrontation with Satan. But our Lord did have a few things against them. And those things were the result of their being just a little too tolerant of one another's beliefs and practices. Verses 14 through 16. But I have a few things against you. Again, this is Jesus talking. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. 
Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Apparently, the fault of Pergamum was the opposite of the fault of Ephesus. The Ephesians, you remember, had become so intolerant and suspect of everyone that they lost love. But Pergamum was too tolerant. And how that pendulum swings, how it swings. Some among their number held to the teaching of Balaam. And the leadership did nothing to stop it. Now, if you remember the story of the talking donkey, you remember Balaam. He was the prophet that King Balak hired to curse Israel as they were marching on their way to promised land and, and had camped just outside of the, his country. Well, when Balaam discovered that God wouldn't let him curse the children of Israel... Every time he tried to speak a curse, blessings would come out. He decided, well, the only way to get God to curse them would be to cause Israel to sin and bring God's curse upon them for their disobedience. And so he counseled the king to seduce Israelite men through the use of pagan banquets and orgies. Invite the Israelites to our parties. That'll do it. Well, the plan worked. Sort of. 24,000 men of Israel were executed because of their sin. But then the Lord told Moses to wage war against Midian, and every Midianite, every adult Midianite, and Balaam was killed by the armies of Israel. So the plan really didn't work very well. But the teaching of Balaam resulted in God's people eating things sacrificed to idols and in their committing acts of sexual immorality. Well, the same things were going on in the church at Pergamum as a result of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we've met these Nicolaitans before. They had tried to infiltrate the church at Ephesus, but couldn't do so. Ephesus was strong when it came to heresy. But they had succeeded in Pergamum. Some in the church held to their teachings. Now, who were these Nicolaitans? We really don't know for certain, but an interesting possibility has been handed down to us. Several ancient historians identify the Nicolaitans as followers of Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch who had been chosen as one of the seven deacons in the church at Jerusalem. The Hippolytus, a disciple of Arrhenius, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who we talked about last week, wrote this. He said, speaking of Nicholas, he departed from correct doctrines and was in the habit of inculcating indifference of food, and life. Now, others have defended him, saying that his teaching was misrepresented, that he really didn't teach that Christians should live immoral lives, but all seemed to agree that the Nicolaitans did live lives of unrestrained 
indulgence, kind of, if it feels good, do it mentality. An additional link between Balaam and Nicholas has also been suggested by some scholars. The name Balaam is said to have come from two Hebrew words meaning conquer the people. And the name Nicholas or Nicolaus is from two Greek words meaning conquer the people. Now, not all agree that's actually the case, but it's apparent that the teaching of Balaam had been revived by the Nicolaitans and had penetrated the church at Pergamum. Some within the church maintained that it was all right to eat things sacrificed to idols and that sexual immorality was inconsequential. Now, the eating things sacrificed to idols doesn't really relate to us very well. But it was a big issue in the early church. Because things sacrificed to idols carried with them the connotation of worshiping false gods. Now, those who said it's okay to eat it probably saw nothing wrong with it. They probably reasoned that uh, it didn't make any difference whether the meat was sacrificed to idols or not because idols weren't really gods. It was irrelevant. That was just meat. They, they got the best deals in meat by going to the, uh, uh, the meat markets alongside the altars. It was a good deal. I can kind of relate to that. But there were issues. There were issues. They didn't understand. Didn't understand that what they were doing would cause a stumbling block for the weaker brother. Because some who would see them eat this meat would assume that they were involved somehow in pagan worship. Eating that food did have religious significance to some. And unlike the Apostle Paul, who said that if eating meat would cause a brother to stumble, he would never eat it again, those in Pergamum who chose to eat it insisted on doing what they wanted. We have the right to do that without giving any thought to the effect it might have on the faith or the life of others. This is a principle that we need to keep in mind when we choose to do things that might cause a brother to sin or to be caught up in sin. Well, some may even have gone so far as to suggest that since everyone knew that Caesar really wasn't a god, that burning a little incense on the altar, as required by law, would be the smart thing to do. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'll just do it. Get it over with. Their involvement in sexual immorality may have come from thinking that only spiritual things really mattered, and it therefore made no difference what you did with your body. That was a common heresy of the day as well. Of course, to believe that, you had to ignore the fact that for a Christian, the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that since Jesus lives within us, to join ourselves to someone in an immoral sexual union is to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into that immoral sexual union as well. Paul made that very clear. In 1 Corinthians 6. And that's why he went on to admonish us to flee immorality, writing, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That is a crucial passage of Scripture in our society today. Sex has become a plaything. It's acceptable, even among many Christians. Only those who understand that their body belongs to Christ, that he indwells them, their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, will have a reason for resisting. Everything else has been taken away in our culture. The disapproval of the older generation is gone now. The consequences of irresponsible sex are pretty well done away with medications and preventatives and so forth. The only thing that's going to keep our kids pure and keep us pure is understanding that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've got to teach that. We've got to make that clear. Well, some in the church at Pergamum had bought into the heresy of the Nicolaitans. And the church was doing little to refute them. Now, it's not popular to be negative or to be against anything. Perhaps the elders felt they had more pressing matters to attend to, especially, especially in view of the persecutions they were under. People were dying for the faith. Why should they argue about silly things like eating meat or having sex? Maybe they just felt like love could only be expressed by tolerance. Now, let's just be tolerant here. Whatever their reasoning, Christ commanded them to repent and to take action and to take it now to deal with the situation. If they refused to deal with it, Jesus said he would come and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Now, who's the them? Well, he wasn't making war with the whole church. But he's making war, he would make war with those in the church who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The distinction between you and them is quite clear here. Christ <coughs> wasn't threatening to destroy the church because it had become too tolerant. He was simply warning them that while their tolerance may have appeared to be the loving response to differing opinions that in reality tolerance of heresy was the least loving response. For to leave it unchecked was to condemn its adherence to the judgment of God. You know, love demands that we do everything possible, even if unpleasant. To assure that all of our brothers and sisters receive the rewards promised to the faithful. That may require disciplinary action within the church. It may require censure or refutation or even public rebuke. But whatever it takes, it will prove to be worth it on the day that the rewards are given to the faithful. And that day is coming. Verse 17. 
He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Instead of enjoying the temporary rewards of compromise with the world, we want the eternal rewards of heaven. Instead of eating the meat of pagan gods, we want to eat the manna of God Almighty. Now, the hidden manna mentioned here may have been linked to the golden pot of manna that had been kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Tradition tells us that before Solomon's temple was destroyed, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and other temple treasures and hid them on Mount Sinai. And a lot of even current issues come from that, that tradition. Well, the rabbis then taught that when the Messianic kingdom came into existence, that those treasures would be recovered and that all God's people would once again feed on the manna that God had miraculously supplied to the Israelites while in the wilderness. Now, that's a beautiful thought, and it may be behind the reference here. But the rabbis misunderstood one very important fact. The true manna wasn't the food that God had supplied in the wilderness. The true manna, the living bread that came down out of heaven, was Jesus himself. So the promise here is that those who overcome, will commune forever with the risen Christ. That's the promise being made. Now, the white stone promised to the faithful is a bit more mysterious. White stones were used in many ways by the ancients. They were used in the judicial system as a vote for acquittal. You know, no one wanted to be blackballed. They were used as tickets, entitling the bearer admittance to games and banquets. They were worn around necks as amulets to, to ward off evil, just to name a few. What, exam what exactly that white stone symbolized here, we can't be sure, but it's possible that it symbolized everything that I've just mentioned. The white stone could picture God's vote for acquittal, the only vote that counts, by the way. It may also symbolize our entitlement to sit at God's banquet table in heaven. And it could symbolize the fact that evil will no longer be able to touch us once victory is secure. The name written on the stone may be a new name given to us, signifying our new nature. Now, just as God changed Jacob's name to Israel and Abram's to Abraham, so he may change our names in heaven to better reflect his appraisal of our life or his eternal plans for us. I don't know. Or it may refer to Christ's new name. It's spoken of in Revelation 19.12, his new name that no one knows. There's no way to tell for sure what we're talking about here, because the it that ends the sentence is vague. It can refer to the stone, indicating that only those who receive a stone will know the new name of Jesus, or to the name written on it, indicating that each will be given a secret name that no one else will know. But either way, 
The promise has to do with eternal reward. It's intended to motivate us to faithfulness. Bottom line, live up to the name of Jesus, which we have taken as our own. And do all that we can to assure that others who have taken the name of Jesus live up to it as well. Let's guard each other. Let's shepherd each other. Let's love each other enough to confront. If you've been given a new name, the name of Christ, live up to it. You may get another one someday in heaven. But now you've agreed to accept the name Christian, have you not? You have taken the name of Christ as your identity in this world. Live up to it. Live up to it. Don't compromise with the world. Or with those who claim to be Christians but say it doesn't matter what you believe or what you do. It does matter. It matters to Christ, the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. And if you've not taken the name of Christ as your own, obviously, I would encourage you to do that. The invitation is open. You know, we don't have long extended invitations, and I see no need to, and most who are in attendance have already responded. But if Christ is convicting you, you're encouraged to act upon it. It can be during our service, it can be during the week, it can be any time. If the risen Christ, speaking through his word, is convicting you of a need to make some adjustments in your life, do it. And if we can help you do that, let us do it. Let us do it. Live up to the name of Christ. And that name can be yours. If you'll express your faith in it. And then live up to it. If you need to, come. And have a new name written down in glory.